Well, please join me as we stand together and read God's Word. And I hope you have a Bible with you. If you do, turn into the first book of the Bible, to Genesis chapter 46, is where we will begin this morning. Our near-year-long study through the Bible's first book is rapidly coming to a close. I do expect that we only have, after today's study, two weeks left, and then we'll see where the Lord takes us from there. I trust this continues to be a blessing to you. What we want to look at this morning is chapter 46 and 47. And what I want to do to get us started is just read the first seven verses. It's in these seven verses that we find God yet again appear to one of the patriarchs in Genesis. But interestingly, this is the final appearance he's ever going to make to Jacob. And if you know your early parts of the Bible well, this is actually the final word from God. Revelation of Yahweh that Israel, anyone in Israel is going to get for over 400 years. From 46 all the way to Exodus chapter 3, God is going to, for all intents and purposes, be silent to His people in Egypt. And we find them going down from the promised land to the pagan land of Egypt in this morning's text. Let me read the first seven verses of our passage, pray for our time, and then we will begin. So let us hear now as God speaks to us through His perfect word. So Israel took his journey with all that he had, and he came to Beersheba and offered sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac. And God spoke to Israel in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And Jacob said, here I am. And then he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. I myself will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also bring you up again. And Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. Then Jacob set out from Beersheba. The sons of Israel carried Jacob their father, their little ones and their wives in the wagons that Pharaoh had sent to carry him. And they also took their livestock and their goods, which they had gained in the land of Canaan, and came into Egypt. Jacob and all his offspring with him, his sons and his sons' sons with him, his daughters and his daughters, his sons' daughters, all his offspring he brought with him into Egypt. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands together. Let's pray. Father, we ask for your help as always as we come to study your word, and we thank you that it is living, that it is active, that you have spoken out for our reproof for our correction, for guidance, for training in righteousness. And so we pray that you would do all of those things, that your Spirit would convict us where we need conviction, comfort us where we need your help, strengthen us where we need your power. Help me to preach as you say I must, with boldness, with clarity, as a dying man unto dying people. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. If you ever had the occasion to study some of the most famous missionaries in church history, you'll inevitably run into a number of names from the early 19th century at the beginning of what was called the modern missionary movement. And if you made their way into their journals, their stories about how they got this call, this commission from the Lord Jesus Christ to take the gospel into these foreign lands, these dangerous places, you'll almost invariably find them referencing an individual from the early and mid-1700s, one that we often call the most influential missionary, certainly in this side of the Atlantic, in church history, and it's a man named David Brainerd. 
And David Brainerd was something of an accidental ambassador for Jesus Christ. He went to Yale wanting to study for the ministry. He wanted to be a pastor in a local church. But he was at Yale during these kind of turbulent years and was rather chaotic and somewhat divisive. And he was once overheard saying in the hallway that a certain professor had no more grace than the chair on which he sat. And not long after that, he was heard saying that he was kind of shocked the rector hadn't actually died. Like God hadn't struck the rector dead because the rector kept fining all the students for their zeal for Jesus Christ. And he was brought up on charges and was quickly expelled from the university. And according to the, the odd ordination customs of the time, such an expelled seminary student couldn't be a minister, but he could be a missionary. And so, on November 25th, 1742, David Brainerd received a call and commission to carry the gospel of Jesus Christ to the Native Americans that were living up and down the Delaware River. And he wrote about his subsequent missionary experience in an incredibly famous journal. And right after receiving that call, here's what he wrote. Here I am, Lord, send me. Send me to the ends of the earth. Send me from all that is called comfort on earth. Send me even to death itself, if it be but in thy service, and to promote thy kingdom. You know, I wonder if the Lord Jesus Christ was to work so mysteriously and powerfully through even your experience of worshiping God this morning as to call you out into a foreign land. You know, a place beyond all your comfort. Even to death itself, would you respond like so many people in church history have done with this brimming bravery? with this courage to carry Christ where he's never been carried before. Or you could be more like Jacob in our text, who is going to receive a call from Yahweh. That's not as much a missionary call, but nevertheless, it's a call to leave all of his comfort. It's a call to go to a place where he's going to die. And Jacob is full of fear, not courage. Maybe you sympathize more with Jacob in such a moment. Now, if you glance over to chapter 47 of our text today, verses 4 and 9, you look through those verses, you'll see that God's people, the covenant family, keep identifying themselves as sojourners to Pharaoh. It's a word we've used often in our study of Genesis so far. Now, kids, do you know what it means to sojourn? It's probably not a word you've used anytime soon. You know, it's a word that simply means living temporarily away from your home, living in a place that's really not your permanent housing situation. And what you want to realize, because those words are going to show up a couple of times in our sermon today, is that all of God's people throughout the ages have always been sojourners. Even in Jesus Christ, we are sojourners as we're wandering in this earthly pilgrimage, waiting for and watching for the new heavens and the new earth to arrive, which is our true and permanent home. Therefore, we are always, this side of heaven, sojourning along the way, finding God calling us out of places where we are comfortable calling us perhaps into places where He means for us to die in the cause of Jesus Christ. So what kind of comforts does He give people that He takes out of comfortable situations into potentially fatal situations? What kind of comforts does He give Jacob and the covenant family of Israel today? Well, you can summarize really the main point of these two passages is simply God promises to be with His people wherever they go. God promises to be with His people Wherever they go, and we're going to see that worked out in a few different ways this morning. First, we're going to see God's promise renewed, then God's promise realized, and by the end of chapter 47, God's promise remembered. 
And if you weren't with us last week, here's where we left off in chapter 45. After 22 years of his brothers selling him into slavery, Joseph and his brothers reunite. Joseph reveals himself to his brothers, and to their shock and dismay and astonishment, he's now the right-hand man in Egypt. Only Pharaoh has more power and authority. And we said last week it was one of the most beautiful pictures that you can find in the Old Testament of the New Testament promise that God works all things together for good. Uh, Jacob went through, frankly, years and years and years of difficulty and hardship, and it was all intended for a good purpose. Look at chapter 45, what Joseph told to his brothers in verse 7 and 8. It's really the essential point of that part of the Genesis narrative where Joseph said, God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was... Not you who sent me here, but God. So God was the one ultimately working through his brother's sin. God was the one that was ultimately putting Joseph into a place of power. God was moving in mysterious ways to bring about his perfect promises. And by the end of the chapter, Jacob had come to believe, because at first he didn't really believe it, that Joseph was alive. He had come to recognize, yes, Joseph is alive, and I'm going to go down to Egypt to see my long-lost beloved son one that he hadn't seen for some 22, 23 years by that point. And as, as we turn our attention to chapter 46, we see God's promise renewed. And notice what we're told again in verse 1. So Israel took his journey with all that he had, and he came to Beersheba and offered sacrifices to the God of his father. Now, if you look at that verse, you think it's all about Old Testament worship as practiced often in Genesis. And that's partly true. But what you want to recognize, something is happening here in the third generation of God's family that had happened already in the previous two generations. Famine is in Canaan, and the promised patriarch is going down to Egypt. And if you know from previous chapters, that never goes well. Right? So Abraham went down to Egypt. It was there that he put the promise in peril. Isaac was thinking about going down to Egypt. And if you remember from chapter 26, verse 2, God appeared to Isaac and said, Don't go down to Egypt. Dwell in the land of which I shall tell you. Sojourn in this land, and I will be with you and bless you. Yet here is Jacob, yet again, third generation in a row, leaving Canaan because of famine, ultimately, going down to Egypt. And you want to know, what does God think about this departure from the promised land to a pagan land? Well, God appears to him in these night visions of verse 2. And look at what God says at the beginning of verse 3. He says, I am God, the God of your father. Don't be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. Now, kids, you might want to ask the question here, verse 3, why is Jacob afraid? What scares Jacob in this moment? Maybe he's heard the stories from his grandfather Abraham, his father Isaac, where he always said, don't go down to Egypt. And yet here I am going down to Egypt. Maybe my disobedience is going to disqualify me from receiving God's promise. Or I think what's better seen is if you just kind of glance through verse 5 through 6, Jacob is old, he's in frail health. I think he he wonders if he's going to make it to Joseph alive. Is he really going to become this great nation as God promised? Or are they all going to die in Egypt? And you'll see that God says, yes, indeed, I'm going to 
realize that promise I made to Abraham, that you're going to become a great nation as numerous as the stars. But even more personally, look at what he says. Yahweh says in verse 4, I myself will go down with you to Egypt. Now, if you were an ancient Near Eastern religious person living at this time of Jacob, and you heard a divine being say, I will be with you wherever you go, you actually would probably immediately think, that can't be true. Because the ancient Near Eastern culture always thought that gods belonged to their particular nation. They never went beyond the borders of that particular people or that particular country. And here's Yahweh saying, I'm going to be with you wherever you go, even when you go down to Egypt. And it's announcing to us in a subtle way, but a very true way, that God is what? A sovereign king over all nations, over all peoples. So he can go with his people wherever they go and wherever they find themselves. And if you're in Jesus Christ, that promise belongs to you. Now, remember those words that we've mentioned already a couple of times in our service. Jesus said as he was ascending to the Father's right hand, I am with you always. Wherever you go, he is with his people. And maybe you're in here this morning, and you wouldn't say that you're a Christian, you're not following the Lord Jesus Christ. I wonder if you have any person in your life on whom you can rely to be with you wherever you go, to provide for you, to protect you, to preserve you along the way. Of course, we believe that there is only one God. There's only one person, the Lord Jesus Christ, that can ever be with you wherever you go. He's not going to remove all of your pain, as we're going to see in Jacob's life, but He can protect you. He can preserve you. He can strengthen you wherever you find yourselves. And so the family continues on. You notice they're making their way down towards Egypt. Look at the end of verse 7. All Jacob's offspring he brought with him into Egypt. So students, what you want to recognize here is that there's no one left back in the promised land holding down the fort. You know, the areas where Jacob's tents used to be, they would have been like ghost towns in the promised land. And they're going to be ghost towns for well over 400 years by this point. God's promise is renewed. His promise of presence, I'll be with you. He said the same thing to Abraham. He said the same thing to Isaac. He's now saying the same thing to Jacob. And what you see really in the massive middle portion of our text is God's promise realized. God's promise realized in verse 8 all the way really through the end almost of chapter 47. Now, kids, I want you to think about a math problem with me for a second because it's quite important to what's getting ready to come in Genesis 46. What two numbers could you multiply together to get the number 70? Now, maybe you think of 35 and 2, or if you think of 7 and 10, those are the numbers that Genesis 46 wants you to think about because they're quite significant in Hebrew thought. 10 is the number of fulfillment. Seven is the number of perfection, and they multiply together to reach the number of completion. Now, here's why that's important. If you glance through verse 8 through following, you have this long list of names. All the offspring that Jacob brings down to Egypt. Look at the conclusion of verse 27. All the persons of the house of Jacob who came into Egypt were 70. 70 is a significant number even in Genesis. The last time we saw it, Genesis chapter 10, the table of nations. Seventy nations that represent the complete descendants from Adam. Now it's seventy offspring that represent the complete descendants from Abraham. In just two generations, God's promise to Abraham to make him into a great nation has gone from this 100-year-old man that's now had his first son, so now all the way down to seventy people going down to Egypt. 
God is making good, isn't He? God is realizing His promise to Abraham. But I think what I want you to see by way of application, even on this point, is the spiritual speedometer of God's promises. It takes a long time, doesn't it? He said, I'm going to make your family into a nation as numerous as the stars in the sky. But here's just 70 people. A couple of generations gone by, decades and decades. And there's only 70. Yet the slowness of God's promise doesn't undermine its sureness, does it? God so often prefers to work out His promises more slowly than we would want Him to, more slowly than we would expect Him to, but it's still steadfast and certain, isn't it? God's promise renewed, God's promise realized, not just in this growing nation, but also as we're getting ready to see in another way. So, they arrive in Egypt. Look at verse 28, whom Jacob decides to send ahead to meet Joseph. He sent Judah ahead of him to Joseph to show the way before him in Goshen. And they came into the land of Goshen. Uh, Judah, again, shows himself to be this kind of marvel of sovereign grace that it's this Judah that's going to be the leader of, of this covenant family. But significantly, if you know the story of Joseph's being sold into slavery, it was Judah that seemed to be the kind of primary person responsible for that treachery. And so it's only fitting, isn't it, that Judah, who is the one really responsible for separating Joseph and Jacob, is now going to be the one that begins to affect their reunion. And you'll see, if you glance down at verse 29, the text tells us that Joseph prepared his chariot. Uh, the language in Hebrew is more literally, he hitched his chariot. It's meant to paint this urgency that the grand vizier of Egypt, he's not waiting in his courts for his family to show up. He's earnest to go see his father, to go see the rest of his family. And when he arrives, look at what the end of chapter 29 tells us. He presented himself to Jacob. He fell on his father's neck and wept on his neck a good while. You could underline that verb there, presented, as it's translated in my ESV. It's showed up multiple times in Genesis by this point. It always refers to this presentation or this appearance of Yahweh meeting with His people. It has this connotation of being awestruck, overwhelmed with this appearance. And now it's used here of Joseph and Jacob. And surely you could probably understand why Jacob might be awestruck and overwhelmed at Joseph's appearance. He hadn't seen him for so many years. The young 17-year-old child that he last saw going off to meet his brothers in the wilderness is now the second-hand man in Egypt. This appearance that would have been so full of power and majesty, it almost means seems to mean that Jacob couldn't even cry. Because if you look down again at verse 29... It tells us only Joseph was the one crying. Maybe Jacob did cry and it just didn't tell us. But it does tell us Jacob's emotional state, doesn't it? Verse 30, he says, now let me die since I've seen your face and know that you are still alive. And if you know the story of Jesus' birth, you might notice how that language from Jacob sounds a whole lot like the language of old Simeon when he held baby Jesus in his arms. Now I can depart in peace, for my eyes have seen God's salvation. I think the connection that we ought to see between those two things is it's very true. When you behold God's Savior, the one who is sent to preserve His people, it eases your way into death, provides peace as you make your passage into the eternal world. 
I was eight years old. No, I was in eighth grade, not eight years old. Eighth grade when I had my first job interview. It was this middle school uh, mock interview that happened in a class I was taking. You know, I wanted to do a good job. I'd never been interviewed on these things before. So I went to my father and said, hey, you know, what uh, tricks and tips might you give to me to, to pass this mock interview exam? So he said, well, they'll probably ask you questions like this. and You probably should answer in this way. And I remember, as young children probably would in many of those circumstances, basically parroting my dad's answers back to the interviewee the next morning. And she was altogether astonished at what I was saying, but not in a good way, because it was very much like, eighth graders don't talk that way. And so I really didn't pass that interview exam as I thought I was going to. But the only reason I tell you that is because that's exactly what Joseph is doing with his family, because he says, here's what's getting ready to happen. Pharaoh's going to summon you to his court, and he's going to interview you. And here is exactly what you need to say. Look at verse 33 and 34. Pharaoh calls you, and he will ask, what is your occupation? And you shall say, your servants have been keepers of livestock from our youth even until now, both we and our fathers, in order that you may dwell in the land of Goshen, is what Joseph is saying. Say this, because every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians. So it's not a duplicitous scheme Joseph is telling them to enact. They genuinely have been shepherds for generations. And the Egyptians can't stand shepherds. And so they'll, they'll relegate you off to this northern land of Goshen. And what you need to notice here is from the very beginning of Scripture, God's people have always identified themselves as a shepherding community. It continues on throughout the Old Testament. It continues on to the New Testament and the Gospels. That is that Jesus comes as what? The good shepherd who pours out gifts upon his church, that they might be under shepherds that will what? Shepherd the flock that he's entrusted to their care. But it's important for God's people to get to Goshen for a variety of different reasons. So it's in this northern kind of frontier of Egypt. Had the best pasture land so their flocks could thrive. Possessions could increase. Not only that, it was quite isolated from Egypt. So in order to protect God's people, the covenant family from getting intermingled with the Egyptians, like what was going on with the pagan peoples of Canaan, it provides this distance, this isolation, where they kind of be this uh, self-protected community. But also, quite importantly, for the story of Exodus, Goshen is the quickest way out of Egypt into the Promised Land. So when God's going to summon them to, to get out of Egypt, to get back to the Promised Land, they're in the prime position to do that and to begin that journey. And so if you glance through the first five verses of chapter 47, it all comes to pass. Joseph takes five of his brothers. Pharaoh interviews them just as Joseph said he would, and they give the answer that Joseph said they should give. Look at verse 6. Pharaoh says, The land of Egypt is before you. Settle your father and your brothers in the best of the land. Let them settle in the land of Goshen. So God is again, in his own kindness, working everything according to his perfect plan. But then in verse 7, something altogether stunning happens. Look at what we're told. Then Joseph brought in Jacob, his father, and stood him before Pharaoh, and Jacob blessed Pharaoh. That's quite different than what you would expect to happen in such an interaction in that culture. You would expect that Jacob would come before Pharaoh, and he would bow, not stand. You would expect that Jacob would come before Pharaoh and listen, not speak. You certainly wouldn't expect that Jacob would come before Pharaoh and bless him. 
Because as the Bible will tell us in the book of Hebrews, it's always the greater that blesses the lesser. And so you're telling me that this hungry, homeless farmer, shepherd named Jacob is greater than Pharaoh, the greatest living power on earth at the time? And Genesis is saying, yep. Because it's God's promise being realized, isn't it? It wasn't just I'm going to make you into this mighty nation, but a mighty nation that would bless all the nations of the earth. And so here comes Jacob with this benediction that he gives to Pharaoh. And notice the interchange that they have in verses 8 and 9. Pharaoh essentially asks, how old are you? And Jacob responds in verse 9, the days of my years of my sojourning are 130 years. Few and evil have been the days of the years of my life. And they have not attained to the days of the years of the life of my fathers and the days of their sojourning. So he's recognizing he's about ready to die. He's actually going to live another 17 years, but he thinks he's getting ready to die. And he knows that he's going to die, the youngest patriarch at this point. He's less concerned with the number of his years than the nature of his years. He says they're few. They're evil. And maybe it's in that moment, you know, summoned before Pharaoh. There's this like movie reel of his life that is replaying before his mind's eye. And all he can think about, understandably so, is how hard his life has been. Decades of difficulty with Esau brings over a decade of difficulty in slave labor in his father-in-law's tents. Decades of difficulty between these two sisters. He marries rival wives. His beloved Rachel eventually dies. His beloved son, Joseph, he thought was dead. His life is difficult. And I suppose some of you might sit in the room today, and if someone was to ask you the years of your life, you'd be less concerned with their number than their nature. You might say, yeah, it's really been hard from start to finish. You know, there have been seasons of blessing and prosperity, but on the whole, as I look back on my life, it's just been difficult. And I want to encourage you from Jacob's example that God loves to call and choose people whose lives aren't perfect who have messed things up to such a degree that they reap the whirlwind of difficult consequences, and yet he still gives his promises to such people. He still comforts such people and says, I'm with you wherever you go. Joseph is really the savior, isn't he, of this whole scene. Look at verse 12. Joseph provided his father, his brothers, and all his father's household with food according to the number of their dependents. He's not just the savior of God's covenant people, the nation of Israel. He's the savior of Egypt as well. And that's essentially what comes in verses 13 through 26. And here's what happens in that text. If you just kind of scan your eyes through it, it's how Joseph goes to provide for all of the people of Egypt in the midst of these years of famine. And it's a text that has troubled many people when you read it on like a first level surface reading. Because it seems like Joseph... This man who has appeared to this point, this kind of gentle, gracious Savior, proves to really be this hard and hard, harsh extortioner. Because here's what happens. The people come to him and they say, we're hungry. Joseph says, give me all your money. I'll give you food. So they give him all their money. And he gives them food. They come back, I don't know, let's say a year later. Hey, we're hungry again, but we don't have any money. So Joseph says, give me all your livestock. And I'll give you some food. So he gives them some food. They come back next. Hey, we're still hungry. But we don't have any money. We don't have any livestock. Well, give me all your land. And I'll give you some food. And they come back again. Hey, we're still hungry. We don't have any money. We don't have any livestock. And we don't have any land. Well, you can just be my servants. And so look at verse 20 and 21. 
Joseph bought all the land of Egypt for Pharaoh. For all the Egyptians sold their fields because the famine was severe on them. The land became Pharaoh's. And as for the people, Joseph made servants of them from one end of Egypt to the other. And you're going to go wrong in thinking that these Egyptian people were ungrateful for Joseph's provision. There certainly is a different cultural reality at play than what we find in our kind of Western culture in the 21st century. You know, these ancient Egyptians, they had taken Economics 101 that knew there was no such thing as a free lunch. You know, you're going to have to pay for it along the way. But importantly, they wanted to live. And whatever it took to live, they were delighted in it. Because look at verse 25. Their pleasure in Joseph. They say, you have saved our lives. Maybe the right way to underscore the uniqueness of that passage is you are our Savior. And may it please you that we be made servants of Pharaoh. So again, God's people are blessing the nations. Providing for the nations. Preserving the nations. Israel begins to settle, you'll notice in verse 27, in the land of Goshen. God's promise is realized also, underscored at the end of verse 27. They gained possessions in it, were fruitful, and multiplied greatly. So Egypt is going to be the womb chosen of God to grow his people into a great nation. And it should be striking to you that it's the womb of persecution. It's the womb of hardship. It's the womb of affliction that God is going to use to grow his people. As we've often said, isn't that how it works spiritually more often than not? That's the womb of affliction that grows God's people best, that grows God's people most. God's promise renewed. God's promise realized. Then as we come to the last three verses, we see Jacob and God's promise remembered. I've done far too many funerals over the last 15 years. I have done more funerals this year than I wanted to or expected to. Five years ago, I remember at the church where I was serving, we had three deaths strike the congregation in rapid succession and totally unexpected. And the first one was this beloved infant in the church that died suddenly. And I remember being at that funeral service. It was small because it was just very close friends and family members that were there for understandable reasons. And Earlier in the week, I had come across this poem written by an old poet named John Donne. And I shared a few lines from that poem in that service that I've never forgotten ever since. He said, Death be not proud, though the whole world fear you, mighty and strong though you may be. Death be not proud, because your pride has failed you. You will not kill me, for even death will die. It's hope and faith staring down death, isn't it? That death doesn't have the last word, that this is not the end. Jacob is staring down death at the end of our passage. And he wants to make way to die in peace. Look at verse 29. When the time drew near that Israel must die, he called his son Joseph to him. As we begin to close, I want to let you know that I'm looking out this morning on a bunch of Israels who must die. You know, kids, don't ever be scared about thinking of death. You know, if Jesus doesn't return anytime soon, everyone in this room is going to die. And you'll have to reckon with it. And the comforting news of our text is it tells you how you can die in peace. You can stare down the face of death 
and not quiver or quake. And I want you to close with two simple thoughts on your mind from Jacob's experience of staring down death. First of which is, as Jacob died with Joseph's presence, so can you die with Jesus' presence. Skip back to verse 4 of chapter 46. It seems like, you know, Jacob's great fear is really this pending death that maybe awaits him in Egypt. So God says, I'm with you when you go down. And look at the end of verse 4. Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. Your beloved son that you thought was dead, he's going to be with you at your death. And he will lay you to rest. I heard this story once from R.C. Sproul. He said he had a young, zealous Christian come up to him recently that had said, I don't have any fear of death. And Dr. Sproul, in his older age, said something that might be surprising to you. He said, I wish I could say that. And then he made a distinction that's pretty useful. And I'm sure many of you know what he means. He said, you know, I don't fear death. It's just the process of dying that scares me. And here is Jacob hearing that the process of his death is going to be one of peace. Now, you don't receive that comfort, but you do have the same promise that as Joseph was with Jacob, Jesus will be with you at the end, strengthening you for your heavenly journey. Because didn't he say, Behold, I'm with you always, even to the very end. Just as Jacob died in Joseph's presence, so you can die in Jesus' presence. By the end of our passage, moving to the other part of the bookend, just as Joseph died in Joseph's promise. Jacob died with Joseph's promise. So you can die with Jesus' promise. Because look at the promise Joseph makes to Jacob in verse 29 through 31, chapter 47. Jacob says, Do not bury me in Egypt, but let me lie with my fathers, carry me out of Egypt, and bury me in their burying place. That's back in the promised land. Joseph answered, I will do as you have said. And Jacob said, Swear to me. And Joseph swore to him. Then Israel bowed himself upon the head of his bed. It really should say Israel bowed himself upon the head of his staff. It's this posture of peace. Because he's dying with Joseph's promise. He's dying in Joseph's presence. And you too can die with Jesus' presence. And with Jesus' promise. Because as great as this promise was, notice Jacob's faith. You know, he recognizes that God has said, I'm going to make you into a great nation. I'm going to bring you back to this promised land. This is going to be yours. I'm going to die in Egypt, Joseph. But God has said, there's an exodus coming. So when that exodus comes, take my bones with you and bury me next to my beloved. Now, if you know the next two chapters in Genesis, you know that it's not just Jacob's bones that Israel is going to have to carry out of the promised land. It's Joseph's bones too. But understand the greater promise that we have in Jesus Christ. Because he promises us a new exodus. He promises us a final deliverance. But whereas Jacob got the promise of reburial in the promised land. You have the promise of resurrection unto the promised land. The new heavens and the new earth. Where you will see the king and his beauty be in his presence forever. Or you will enjoy the fulfillment of all of his promises forever. And so we can't say, can't we, in Jesus Christ, God is with his people always, wherever they go, both now and forever. Amen. Let's pray together.
Father, we ask that you would help us to know your peace. A peace that is found in your son, Jesus Christ. Our only Savior, our only Redeemer. Our Prince of Peace who has restored us to fellowship with you. Lord, comfort us in your promise. These precious truths that you have given to us, we want to be strengthened by them today. As your Spirit knows, we need your word. So let the Spirit apply it specifically that we might be nourished and knit together. That we might be built up in Jesus Christ, rooted in him always. And we pray in his name. Amen. Well, God's promise, God's presence it is meant to bring us peace, isn't it? And so let us stand together as we sing our hymn of response, which is a hymn of God's glorious peace, number 699, Like a River Glorious.